Welcome to episode number 20 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring filmmaker Antonia Bogdanovich. Her debut feature film as a writer and director, Phantom Halo, is due out in theaters and on demand this summer. On today's episode, we'll discuss the legacy of her mother, Polly Platt, who is an accomplished art director, production designer, screenwriter, as well as a producer and development executive at James L. Brooks' company, Gracie Films. We'll discuss Polly Platt's work as an art director and production designer on Peter Bogdanovich's early films, The Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon. Her work as a screenwriter on Louis Maul's film, Pretty Baby, as well as Polly Platt's eye for discovering talent, which includes Matt Groening, who would go on to create The Simpsons, screenwriter, director, and producer J.J. Abrams, as well as Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, whose debut feature film Bottle Rocket was produced by Polly Platt. We'll also discuss Polly Platt's work as a producer on Cameron Crowe's first film as a director, Say Anything. We'll also have an update on Orson Welles' lost film, The Other Side of the Wind, which is currently in the process of being completed by Antonia's father, Peter Bogdanovich. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And you can follow us on Twitter for the latest updates, at jogroad. And now we join filmmaker Antonia Bogdanovich as she discusses her mother Polly Platt's early work as an art director and production designer. Her mom, Polly Platt, uh, it was interesting to find out that she was actually the first woman to become a member of the Art Directors Guild. Is that right? Yes, it is. And, uh, I mean, she had done so many things through her career, screenwriting, production design, wardrobe, producing, uh, even being a development executive. But how important uh, was it to her to be a production designer and really learn that craft? Um, I think it was the most important thing that she uh, did in her career. Um, I think that was um, how she got into the business. Um, she was a costume and, and set designer um, in the theater. And um, she aesthetics and how films and theater looked were always primary in her mind. Um, but then again, she was always a producer, you know? in her heart. But I think that her background in production design was the most important for her personally and how she approached movies and, and taught me how important that was, how somebody dresses the color of a wall, where a clock is located in a room, um, you know, what paintings are on the wall, where they are on a wall. Um, it's something that she taught me over and over again. Like when we watch films, yeah, I- she would point those things out. Yeah, I think those specific elements uh, really define uh, a film, can define characters, and can also just create even kind of collaborate with the cinematographer in a sense and creating a color scheme and, you know, all of those details really add up to the entirety of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I I can tell you a great story that I heard recently. Um, My mother was, I don't know if she was credited as production designer on Paper Moon because she might have not been in the union yet, but she was, in fact, the designer of the film, and uh, my father, Peter Bogdanovich, recently told me that um, it was her idea to put the the money, the $800 that Tatum and uh, Ryan O'Neill are hiding from the cops um, in her hat when they're in the jail cell, in the jail, and they're being interrogated, and she kind of scratched.
matches her face and points up to the hat. It was my mom. I, my mom's idea to put it in the hat, and of course she chose that specific hat. Wow. So um, I thought that was pretty amazing to find that out that that was my mother's idea. Yeah, and then you see in the in the film how the, there's that zoom in, and then you see where the the money is hiding in the hat. Exactly, exactly, and it's such a oh, it's such a moment in the film. It's, it's like you never forget that moment. Yeah, and uh, what's interesting too, uh, your mom—I don't. She probably wasn't in the union yet, but also for her last picture show, um, she had also designed. I think like the whole cafe, the uh, which is kind of a, a vocal point of the film, and also the pool hall. Is uh, yeah, that true? yeah, absolutely. She was definitely a designer. She also did the makeup. There's a pic. There's a photograph of her actually applying uh, blood to um, Tim. Bottoms' eye um, for the scene when um, Jeff Bridges, you know, hits him with the bottle. Oh, and the, the glass uh, yep. cracks everywhere. Yeah. So she applied that, uh, you know, basically, you know, blood makeup on his eye. So, so your mom was really, she had done, she was doing kind of wardrobe, production design, makeup all at once. Uh, as part, I guess, I mean, that was sort of a low budget film, I think, uh, last picture show. It was. It was for that time. It was very low budget. Um, I, um, so she did do the makeup and I think hair, but I mean she didn't continue to do that. I don't think the next film she ever did that again. Um, she, I don't know how much she, the makeup she did on Targets either, but um, I know my father and her co-wrote that, and I'm sure she did the design on that as well. Yeah. Uh, in terms of her work as a, a screenwriter, uh, I know that. Uh, the first film that Louis Maul made in the United States, uh, uh, Pretty Baby. Uh, that was originally a script that uh, she had written on her own before Louis Maul came in. Is that right? I think so. She definitely um, was writing it. I remember being pretty close to her and hearing a lot about it at that time. I was very young. But she came back from New Orleans the first time and said that she had done all this research on whorehouses and um, and how fascinating it was uh, that time in history. And she was always a historian, like a bit of a history buff. Um, and so she really enjoyed writing a period piece about that time and, and the jazz era and the blues and everything that was going on in New Orleans, uh, you know, in the early 1900s. So, um, yeah, that was definitely something that she had conceived of. And I can't remember if it was her and Louis thought of the idea or Louis Maul came in afterwards but she was a in a pivotal part of of the production as well um she was an associate producer but she was on set every day back in those days an associate producer credit was a lot bigger than a producer than it is now that was a big deal was that um was it, I mean, I know producer credits have sort of changed over time, so was that sort of uh, kind of like above a line producer? I mean, was that sort of running production day-to-day, or was it more kind of uh, creative uh, end of the process? Yeah, she was always a creative producer. So that was definitely a, a creative um, role. And um, her and Louie were very close when they were close as far as working together when they were shooting. Um, I remember her being on set. Um, I'm sure she was part of casting, which she always was with everybody, with Peter and with James L. Brooks and 
Cameron Crowe, um, all the people that she worked with, um, casting was, she was part of the casting process. Wow. So she, um, so she was always in casting sessions and always suggesting certain actors to come in that she thought would be appropriate for the parts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She was definitely in the casting sessions with Jim Brooks for sure. Um, and of course, Cameron and, uh, with Wes Anderson on Bottle Rocket, of course there were a lot of, most of the cast was, uh, came from the short film. Owen and Luke Wilson were both on the short as well as Bob Musgrave and, um, you know, um, the gentleman that played, uh, the heavy, um, I forgot his name right now. Uh, James Kahn? Yeah, James Kahn yeah. was cast, of course, for the feature. Um, but yeah, she was, she, she was suggesting people and bringing people in and, uh, throughout the, the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, your mom continued as a production designer. Uh, I believe she did A Star is Born, Bad News Bears, uh, and even uh, Terms of Endearment, uh, for which I believe she received an Academy Award nomination. Uh, but at what point was it that um, she really wanted to make a transition into being sort of a full-time kind of development executive producer where she started uh, working for James L. Brooks? Um. Well, she did uh, Terms of Endearment with Jim, and um, and I think at that point, Jim learned that she was more than just a production designer, um, as she was with my father. Yeah, she got credit for being a production designer, but she was developing these projects and Peter's creative partner on, on, on many things. Um, so as a creative producer um, for my father's films, but she wasn't getting credit for that. So I think Jim saw that and actually asked her to produce broadcast news. That's how she made the transition, is he asked her, will you produce broadcast news? So was she uh, a major part of developing uh, the script with uh, Jim as well? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Wow. No, just broadcast news is one of my favorites. I think that's, uh, you know, definitely one of Jim Brooks' best films. Yeah, yeah, she was definitely part of that process. Um, Jim's definitely um, a solitary writer, but I'm sure that she was giving him notes. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't remember her telling me about that, but I, she was always a creative part of any production she was on. Um, you know, and Jim worked, they worked together on several projects in development specifically. Um, and I think after the success of Broadcast News uh, is when Jim invited her to be a part of Gracie. I don't know if she was an executive before Broadcast News. I don't think she was. Yeah. Uh, was it also around kind of the late 80s that uh, she had found Matt Groening? Uh, I believe there was a comic that he had written called Life in Hell, and that's what uh, she had brought to Jim Brooks, and you know, eventually Matt Groening would go on to create The Simpsons. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, the late 80s, um, I was in, coming out of high school, and um, I went over to her house for lunch, or I was living with her still, and she showed me a cartoon of Life and Hell, because we lived in Santa Monica, and, um, you know, there were these three newspapers, and she would always read all the papers, all the local papers, as well as the New York Times, and she, she it was in a Venice free newspaper uh, from Venice Beach and she, she showed me this 
cartoon and she said read this and I said I read it I loved it I laughed she's like isn't it genius I'm like completely and she's like I'm bringing this to Jim so the next thing I know um, she says we're bringing Matt in Jim loved him and they're going to do uh, a little skit in between the Tracy Almond you know between the, the scenes of the Tracy Almond show so that's how the Simpsons came about because my mother discovered the cartoon in Life and Hell in a free newspaper in Venice. And I was one of the people that she showed the cartoon before she even took it to Jim. Wow. What do you think it was uh, that your mom would see in so many people? Because it seems like she had an incredible eye for talent. Um, you know, as we'll talk soon about Wes Anderson as well. Uh, do, do you think that she always had that sense of like, you know, this person is capable of doing amazing things and, you know, really uh, having that eye? I, you know, I would definitely, uh, I would say that it was because she was incredibly intelligent, uh, more so than most people know. Um, she was, she was extremely bright and, um, and I think she was able to see talent in others much more than she saw in herself. She was pretty insecure, like a lot of artists are and a lot of people that are in this business, um, I think it's why we gravitate to this this business. Um, and uh, she didn't give herself enough credit, but she could surge it. She just had this, this ability to know that somebody was going to do very well. Um, and, I mean, she, she said that about Wes, and she said it about J.J. Abrams long before J.J. I mean, it felt like a long time before J.J. did. Felicity when she was telling me about this, but maybe it was a couple of years, but it, it took a while for, I mean, if you would have said that JJ was going to, to, to be where he is now when Felicity came on, I would have said, my mom would have said, yeah, she would have said, absolutely. I have no doubt and I'm not surprised. Yeah, who's going on to, uh, you know, direct a whole series of Star Wars movies now. It's oh, incredible. yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, I knew J.J. We were all in the same building. Had, had your mom read uh, an early script uh, from J.J.? or She, she, he had a development deal at Gracie Films in 19, I don't, 19, in the early 90s, um, when they were doing, around the time they were, I think Bottle Rocket was finished and they were doing I'll Do Anything. Uh, at, at Gracie and um, he had a development deal and my mother and Jim it probably Jim had brought him in because of Regarding Henry because he had written Regarding Henry and um, my mother really liked that script I remember her telling me about it and liked the movie brought him in and he was very young and he developed a script at Gracie for about a year called All Four Years and um, it didn't work out they were going to make the movie there, but um, he took the script with him when he left, um, when the contract ended, and he turned that into a pilot called Felicity. And yeah. the rest is history. But that, that script was a feature originally called All Four Years. Yeah, and that was... About kids in college. Yeah, that was on the WB, I remember. Uh-huh, right? Felicity was on the WB, yeah. yeah, and I remember, I mean, look, I, was, I hung out with JJ in his office all the time when we had downtime, because I was an apprentice editor on I'll Do Anything, so I, um, I would go downstairs during downtimes during the day, and he would, you know, we'd hang out at his office, and he had all the flashcards up on the wall for, for the, the scenes in all four years, and so it was very similar uh, to what 
became um, publicity. Wow. Yeah, he's yeah. Uh, he's an amazing uh, talent. He's gone on lost so many TV shows. Bad oh, robot. Yeah. And my mother talked that way about him, like he's going to be super successful. And JJ recently told me that on the weekends they would work on all four years. Um, you know, in my mother's home, he would go over there. So she was working with these young, up and coming talents, taking away from her private time. You know, that was that was very important to her. Uh, nurturing and fostering these people that she believed in and, and liked personally. I mean, JJ is a very incredibly likable, um, humble, awesome person, you know, and he was like that back then. Yeah. So you, your mom was always uh, giving feedback with writers and really very much there helping them develop as writers and helping them develop their scripts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was very good at that. She was good, very good at that with Peter. She was really good at that with Wes and, and Jim and, um, you know, no, you know, she was really good at, no, she, she did it with me. I mean, I got to experience it firsthand before she passed away. I didn't discover that I wanted to be a screenwriter until later when I was a little older in my 30s. And she, she gave me notes and I was just blown away by her notes. She was very good at that. What's uh, what do you think is one of the most helpful notes that she ever gave you? Um, I would say character development. I just I just I discovered that a lot on my own by just when a script isn't working. But I would say I was working on an action adventure, like um, uh, an adventure on the high seas with Somalian pirates and um, you know sex trafficking. And she's like, darling. You can't have a movie like this without a giant explosion in the third act. And I just looked at her. I was like, you're right. She's like, you have to just go for it. Blow the whole ship up. She's like, you can blow this. And then I started doing research on container ships. And you can actually blow the deck of a container ship up. And it won't, it won't, if it, as long as it doesn't touch the whole hull, the hole, um, you know, the ship can still keep uh, not sailing, but going through the sea, whatever you call it, you know, yeah. sailing, I guess, even though it's on a sailboat. So, yeah, that was one of the things that I talked about in my, uh, in my eulogy about her is how this mother-daughter discovery of, of this great idea and, and how it was, it was like a aha moment, but kind of like, oh, why didn't I think of that? This is an action adventure. we got to have a big explosion. And there were guns already. You know, there were shootouts. There was kidnapping. There wasn't like a big explosion, and it really like really was an ace in the hole. Yeah, uh, I was curious about uh, your mom's involvement uh, producing "Say Anything," uh, which was the debut directing uh, assignment for Cameron Crowe. Uh, she was credited, I think, as the sole producer on that. Uh -huh. yeah, she was. Um, that was a Gracie film and uh, production, and she was working with. Uh, Cameron developing the script, and um, Cameron actually did some research with me and my friends because we were in high school, and he would come and hang out with us because some of my friends were very uh, delinquent, and so he would come and talk to us, and we all knew he was a writer for Rolling Stone, and we thought it was really cool, and he was super cool, and he was also married at the time to Nancy Hart, um, and then uh, my mom told me that he told he he. My mom told me that she told Cameron that if he didn't want 
to have his script ruined, he should direct it himself. So that's how uh, that kind of came about. She told him, you should do this or else somebody else is going to take your script and ruin it. If you want to keep your vision. Um, and I think she did that with a lot of, because she wrote, worked with Jim, who was a writer-director, and Peter, who was primarily a writer-director, um, she knew that the best way to maintain the vision was to have the writer direct. Now, not all writers are great directors, but she just happened to work with those that were very good at it. Yeah. Was uh, was there any advice that you think uh, your mom gave to Cameron Crowe as he was sort of embarking on you know his first feature or sort of advice that she may have given him throughout the shoot? Um, absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, Cameron had never made a movie before, and my mother had made quite a few by then. Um, not as a designer and a, a, a producer and also as a writer. So she was extremely experienced visually in, you know, where to put the camera and how to shoot a scene. And Cameron didn't, didn't, Cameron did not know, I mean, he'd never written, he'd never made a film before. So she was kind of instrumental in teaching him, you know, it's like a film school that you're going through, you know, you're doing it for real. Um, you know, he understood that on a very deep level by that point in her career. Yeah. So Cameron recently told me a couple of years ago when we were talking about her um, how 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 naive he was and how much um, she taught him. She actually he actually told a really funny story about my mom and because <laughs> my mom was definitely tough, okay, and she said it like it is, and that that was so not always easy to hear, um, not only as a daughter but as a, as a, a creative person working. Um, as a collaborator, she, she, Cameron said, you know, now that I'm much farther along in my career, I could say that, you know, with Polly, you always knew when she was going to stab you, and she would stab you in the front. She would never stab you in the back. You always knew it was coming. So this was my mother in a nutshell. She, she would say it like it is to your face. She wouldn't go and stab you in the back. She'd say, you need to do this and you need to do that. And I think Cameron really appreciates that now because obviously he's been stabbed in the back a few times since then, right? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> That's what the story implies. Yeah. You know? Um, and I thought that was absolutely who my mother is. Um, it wasn't always easy to hear. Maybe she wasn't always right, but she would tell you right to your face. Well, I think that's also a, a great quality to have as a producer because, you know, there's a sense that, um, you know, as a producer, you really have to defend your filmmaker, you know, your director who's trying to, you know, execute his or her vision. Uh, so I think that's a great thing about your mom and what you're describing her and that, you know, if there was really a, an issue happening, she wouldn't, you know, go to another producer, another executive. She would go to the director or filmmaker and you know, state what the problem is, and that can probably make the film better at the end of the day. Oh, absolutely. She was she was championing her people, always, you know. Um, and I, you know, n n you don't always necessarily take the note or take the advice, but she was going to give it. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, too, about uh, did your mom ever have any inkling to direct herself and to sort of embark on her own feature film? Absolutely. She was going to 
Um, I don't know the name of, of some of the other projects, but she was, uh, she always wanted to direct the film. She was, okay, that's not true. Originally, she was supposed to direct um, War of the Roses. She found the book. Really? She read the book, and she brought it to Jim, and they optioned it, and they ended up making the film, and she was an executive producer on that. She, she was originally attached to direct it. I don't know what happened in the process. Either Jim took it away from her for whatever reason and, and gave it to Danny, or she decided she didn't want to do it. It could have been there were some creative differences that she didn't agree with, but I know she was attached to direct that. And I don't know what happened um, with why that ended up not being the case. I don't remember my mom ever being really upset about it. Um, and then uh, she was, for years, she was developing a novel by Larry McMurtry called All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. And um, that was in development for a long time with Fred Roos attached to produce it. And um, she even auditioned... Um, I was an actress at the time, and she had, she had me come in and be a reader for um, um, David Arquette to play the lead, and Charlize Theron even came in and read, and she was going to cast both of them to play uh, the leads in the movie. Um, All My Friends is about a writer in Hollywood, and um, the female lead is supposedly based on my mother. I'd have to confirm that with Larry, but... Just recently, Ethan Hawke asked me um, if that was the case, and, and, I, and he knows all about that book. He loves it as well. Um, Did Larry McMurtry also, uh, was that the book that he dedicated to your mom? Yes, he did dedicate it to her, yes. I think so. I think so. Um, but I know that, that it's always been rumored that the, the, the woman in it was based on my mother, and there's a lot of similarities. It's a very hard book to adapt make into a film she always wanted to make that and I think she just she I would everybody wanted her direct and I asked her more than a, once why she wasn't going to do it or she had decided not to do it or you know all my friends was hard I don't think it ever got off the ground like a lot of projects but she said you know that's a tough job all the pressures on you and you get blamed for everything she's like I prefer to be a producer you know, I don't want to get blamed for everything. She just didn't want to be up front. Um, and she just, she did, she had a desire for a while, but really, you know, she just, I don't think it was her true calling. And a, a lot of people would say otherwise, but she, uh, I think she would have made an amazing director, but she just didn't want that pressure. I think she'd seen it too many times, you know, the, the ups and downs of being a director. Yeah, but uh, I mean, she was a major uh, creative collaborator and also, too, in finding talent, uh, you know, like Wes Anderson, for example. Uh, so is it true that she had saw the Bottle Rocket short uh, that I believe that was at Sundance? I think that was 93, 94? Yeah, um, Barbara Boyle, who was a good friend of my mother's, who um, was at the time, I think she was an entertainment lawyer. Eventually, she ran the UCLA Film School. Not sure what she was at that time. They, they, my mother and her were very close friends. And Barbara went to Sundance. And, or maybe Barbara was a producer at that time. But Barbara went to Sundance and saw the short and brought back a VHS copy of it to my mother. And my mother watched it and, of course, said to Jim, we need to bring these boys in and we need to develop this script and we need to make it. So... 
at the time, Wes already had a script based on the short written. And um, I remember my mother, I remember going over to my mother's house and her copying in the VHF copy of Bottle Rocket and us watching it together. It was black and white and it was incredible. She's like, isn't it fantastic? I said, amazing. And again, it was, I'm bringing this to Jim. We're going to do this movie and uh, we're going to bring these boys in. So um, for a year, uh, Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson had an office at Grace Films in the Sydney Poitier building in Sony and they developed the script over a year. And then Polly produced it with, uh, with you know, on set with Wes. Well, do you know uh, part of the process of how your mom had developed uh, the Bottle Rocket script with uh, Wes and Owen? I mean, I think they would go in and do notes. And, um, you know, and I don't know the details. Of course, Wes would know a lot more. And, um, you know, he would be able to elaborate. But um, giving notes, I know that my mom really wanted to support Wes and his vision. And that was kind of her, um, you know, that was her, her priority. And Jim might have wanted to change it a little bit more um, because he was a writer and, and that was his thing to really develop and change a lot more. And I think there was some, you know, it was, it was tough because Wes really, wa- Wes is very much, um, he has his own vision and his, his own way. And I think we've seen that that has, uh, you know, exploded into a very original and compelling career for him. So he was always that way. So I think that I remember my mother really wanting to support that. And I think at the end of the day, that's the strip that they ended up making is the one that Wes had written. I, I do think it changed from the original, uh, but not not as dramatically as it might have if Polly wasn't there supporting him. Um, and it's not to say that Jim wasn't amazing in that process as well, because he was. Yeah. Um, but I know that there was some, there was, you know, like in any developmental process, there's, you know, tugs and pulls. What's interesting is uh, on the Criterion DVD for, for uh, Bottle Rocket, there's a documentary uh, where your, your mom's also interviewed on that. And, uh, you know, they talk a little bit about the development process and, you know, Wes is developing this very specific visual style, you know, that now we kind of see throughout the films that all the films that he's done, but at the time it was just so new and revolutionary that, you know, some people just didn't understand it, but, you know, clearly it's connected with so many people. He developed his own, he had his own voice and you can even see that within the short. Yeah. And I think that's what my mother picked up on. I mean, look, she didn't shy away from originality. Um, I think I don't think anybody should in the business um, to be that original. Um, it was hard. It was he was so. I mean, nobody had ever done anything like what he was trying to do, and um, it was it had its beginnings in Bottle Rocket. But I think Royal Tannenbaum's is really where we started to see. Wow, this guy is an innovative, really original filmmaker, and. Uh, you could see that in the short, you know? Yeah. Um, there's definitely a, a tone was, in the short. Very, yeah. Know. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm so, oh, I was going to say there's definitely like a really specific uh, tone in the short, you know, this kind of atmosphere that you feel that's all throughout his features. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Owen and Luke were part of that. You know, they were very, very close, the three of them. 
Um, they lived in a house together the whole year that they were in Los Angeles. You know, they'd never been out to. They, I don't think they. I don't think I, any of them had really been to Los Angeles before. I, I don't know, but I know they hadn't spent a lot of time there. They were Texas boys. You know, my mom called them the Bottle Rocket Boys for years. <laughs> I mean, that was their kind of, you know, the bottle rocket boys. And, you know, she wasn't that much older than them at the time. I mean, I thought she was a lot older, but when you think about it, she was in, I think she was in her early 50s. And, uh, you know, they were like her kids. You know, she adopted them and nurtured them. She loved Wes. She loved Owen. I mean, they were lovable, you know. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, that short is really the the feature acting, or not the feature, but the acting debut of uh, Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson. I don't know if everybody yeah, realizes absolutely. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember it was just so funny when you you're watching the short and then you find out that you know they're actually robbing Luke's mother's house, Luke's character's mother's house, and you're like, this is so odd. <laughs> Shot in black and white, and just the framing, and the t- like you said, the tone. Um, she loved that, you know, and the fact that they were able to get that movie made at Sony when it was, it was every, I mean, it was an independent film at that time that they were able to make it at Sony. Yeah, you know? that's surprising to see a movie like that come from a major studio, you know, fully backed by you know, Columbia Pictures at that time. Well, I think it was because of Jim. You know, yeah. Jim was, you know, he had a development deal there and they respected him and he'd made some amazing films and was continuing to make amazing films, not just as a director, but as a producer. I mean, War of the Roses, Jerry Maguire, you know, um, Say Anything. So I think Say Anything was before Ball Rocket. So it wasn't, they they trusted that this film was going to turn out well if Polly and Jim's company did it, you know? Yeah. And uh, what's incredible, too, uh, I just wanted to bring up is that at the Golden Globes uh, last Sunday night, when Wes Anderson accepted his award for the Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, he thanked your mom. She was one of the many people that he thanked. Yeah, he thanked her last. And most importantly, James L. Brooks and Paul's last. Yeah. Yeah, that was was pretty incredible. I was watching the Golden Globes with my eight-year-old son, and we were about 20 minutes behind. because we started late and, uh, you know, he's been on more than a few sets with me and, um, you know, has lives in San Jose with me, but he's very much being influenced by the business that we're in. And I said, oh, and they would, they would cut to Wes and I'd say, my mom started in the business, um, you know, and then uh, they announced that he had won Best Director and he went up there and started thanking people and I wasn't expecting it, and when he did do that, I kind of jumped up and down and thanked him. I was thanking him to the room, like the empty room, just me and my son. And then I started crying um, because, of course, I missed my mother. And those people were so important to her, and what she did for them was so much a part of her life to have, to be thanked that way. And also next to Jim, because she loved Jim so much, and... They had such a strong bond for 15 years. It was just, it was very much a, a nice kind of healing because my mom's had a my mom had a hard life, you know. So um, she had a great life, but she had a hard life too, you know. And uh, so yeah, that was um, that was very meaningful to me and my family that she that she was thanked by Wes in that moment. 
Yeah, and it just shows, you know, Wes, uh, with all of the success that he's had, he still remembers, uh, you know, the very beginning and that cheerleader that he had in your mom and that support system so that he could accomplish all that he has accomplished. You know, it makes all the difference in the world when somebody says you're good. You only need one person to say that to you um, because you're not going to get a lot of support in the real world as an artist. Most people frown upon that, right? Oh, you're a writer, okay, like, you know, or, or you want to be this or you want to be that, and, you know, um, they kind of roll your eyes, but she, I mean, I definitely know that was important, that you have, Wes was told, hey, you're great and we're going to do this here, um, makes all the difference in the world. Oh, I know it made a huge difference to JJ, he's told me that more than once. Yeah, no, it's uh, very important to uh, to have that support. Yeah, yeah, and she was, by the way, she was also there during editing. Um, she was there a lot when Jim was editing his stuff as well, in editing sessions. She was also there for Bottle Rocket and, uh, and uh, Say Anything. Yeah. So uh, she was there in post as well. I saw on, uh, on IMDb, uh, you were an apprentice editor on I'll Do Anything. So you were working at Gracie Films in, in editing and working on various projects or? Um, I would, I would read scripts from, I mean, I was in and out of college and, um, I would read scripts for my mother, you know, for, uh, for Gracie for a fee. I wasn't like on staff, but you know, they would pay me just for the reading of the script. So I was doing that and doing you know, feedback on the scripts and recommending them or not recommending them. And then um, I really wanted to work in the movie business and my mother really wanted me to go to college and I didn't really feel like college was important. So there was a time that I w wasn't really wanting to be in college and I said, you know, I'd love to be a PA on I'll Do Anything, it's a musical, it's going to be really exciting. And, um, and so I got a job as a PA um, in the editing room for uh, Richard, Richard Marks, Richie Marks. And um, I started as, an, as a PA, and then I worked my way up before I think we even, way before we even finished production, I was already an apprentice editor, and I was thinking dailies and doing telephony, yeah. transferring dailies, and yeah, I was there for the whole process. I think it was two years. It was a long time. What do you think uh, you learned from watching, uh, you know, Richard Marks, who's you know, one of the great editors. I think he did Apocalypse Now and a lot of Jim Brooks' oh, yeah. films. Uh, so what do you think you learned from him that sort of carries over to now when you're directing yourself? Oh, I think I learned a tremendous amount from editing. I wish I'd spent more time in the editing room. But I also watched my father edit uh, St. Jack when I was very young. I mean, I was not even 10 years old. And I was staying with him in the summer, and we, he did 45 versions of the film, and we screened it in his screening room. So I watched my father edit, um, and I think that's why it was, it was, I picked it up really quickly. Um, editing's everything. I mean, it's the final rewrite, and that's what editors say. Um, and Richie also worked on broadcast news in terms of endearment, so my mother and him were good friends. So, uh, yeah, I learned to... I continue to learn uh, more and more about editing and what I learned in post-production on my film, Phantom Halo, that I just finished um, will carry on to my next film because I learned so much in the editing room that I can apply to production to make, make it easier when you're editing and uh, more accessible and just 
you know, more more options in the cutting room. The new film that you directed, Phantom Halo, I believe it had a premiere at the Austin Film Festival? Yeah, we premiered at Austin Film Festival. Um, it went really well. The, we had a full house and people were laughing and cheering and it was kind of beyond my expectations. Um, and uh, we are in in negotiation now to have a distribution in um, this summer. It's going to be a limited theatrical and a premium VOD, which I'm very happy to have in my first film. Um, a, it started as a short, um, which actually my mother kind of, I was able to read, read, it, read the script to my mother before she passed away. But she passed away three weeks before I shot the short. And, um, you know, she told me to never give up. And um, it's been a long road, um, but I'm very happy to be here. I dedicated Phantom Halo to my mother, um, but it's at the end, very end of the credits, because I knew she would have been pissed if, if she was the first card up. I did, I did that for the short. Um, I know she would have wanted me to do it, so, and I know she would have been really upset because I know how my mother is. Um, every every part of, um, I would say there's so many parts to me as a filmmaker that have been influenced by my mom. I can't even. I can't even count them. There's always this little voice in my head when I'm on a set directing, not that I've been on so many sets directing, but the, you know, two, and I did a lot of theater directing where, you know, the voice will say, move that clock over there or shift that painting over there. I'm very much aware of production design. I could never be a production designer. I don't have the kind of um, talent in that area as my mother, but if I have a great production designer, I'll say, well, that color doesn't look good. I wouldn't necessarily be able to conceive of the original color, but I'll say, no, that doesn't work. Um, so production design is extremely important to me, and who I hire as a production designer will always be extremely important. Um, and just even talking to actors, and I would, I would say I learned a lot of that from my dad, how to talk to actors, but uh, so many other things... Um, that are kind of osmosis, like you don't know you're learning. Um, and wardrobe, too. You know, who, how somebody's dressing and how it changes. I think I learned more, a lot from my mother, of what not to do. It's interesting when you see a bad movie, how much you can learn. Um, I mean, really learn from watching a bad movie. Yeah. I and I've noticed costumes all the time. Because I went to so many movies in the theater with my mother or watch them at home or screeners and she would just be screaming at the TV all the time. I'd be <laughs> gone, can we just watch the movie? But I didn't realize at the time how much I was learning from that. I mean, over and over and over, that dress is atrocious against that, you know, that wall background or that dress is atrocious against that wallpaper. So what kind of clothes, you have to like imagine the clothes on the set too. That's more important than just looking at it you know, against a white background in, in, you know, a wardrobe. Yeah, it has to work with every element that, that you're photographing. Yeah, yeah. And and accessories, too, purses. And, I mean, if you watch What's Up Doc, there's so many outfits that Barbara Streisand wears in that movie that my mother wore. Like, I remember my mother wearing that exact outfit. I'm like, that's my mother's shirt. <laughs> you know, he just, he just, you know, to her style, she had an incredible style. 
Yeah, I think it's important uh, because film is really just the accumulation of all of these details, you know, what the person's wearing and what the set looks like and all the details. It's just as important as where you're going to place the camera and have a certain angle. It's so important. It's so important. And then also how, yeah, I mean, I definitely would say that, you know, because I lived primarily with my mother growing up, um, there, I just learned a ton from her. And I never thought that I would, I really never thought I would be a director. And I definitely never thought I'd be a writer. Because my parents were such good writers, and I felt like I was really good in math and science. Like, very good. And struggled with English. And so I always compared myself as a lot of well-known or successful people in the industry do when your parents are very successful. It's intimidating and you feel stupid or subpar to them um, for a long time until you have your own identity and say, no, 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 I learned from them. I'm definitely my own person, but I learned from them because I have a very strong aesthetic and I have a very strong, I'm very opinionated and I have a very strong personality. But, um, you know, so did my mother. The, the more, the older I get, the more I feel like her. You know, in a lot of ways, and um, just the way I approach things now. I wish I had her blunt honesty, because a lot of times I'm, I avoid that. Because especially when you're up and coming, you don't want to piss people off. You don't want to burn bridges. But I remember she always used to say to me, don't be a kiss ass. So I don't kiss ass, but I'm working on kind of being as honest as humanly possible. Yeah, I guess it's just sort of walking a fine line when you're trying to be political and you're working on a set, and I guess you're just trying to kind of get along with certain people to uh, to kind of know when to give your opinion and know when not to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially as a producer, that's a lot. That's a lot more. Um, that's a lot trickier. But when you're a director, you know, you just got to make sure to respect and um, collaborate with everybody. Which my mom was a great collaborator, and I love collaborating with with the people I'm working with. Um, so that's that's really important to learn as well. Um, when you're a producer, you know, you got to respect the vision of the director. And I just produced the Phenom um, with Ethan Hawke and Paul Giamatti and Noah Wishnell uh, directed it. And, you know, that we had to respect his vision. And, you know, when you're a director, primarily you have to learn, okay, well, this is his movie and this is what he's, this is his vision and how I, how can I support that? Yeah. You know, I, I was curious, uh, too, what you learned from your father growing up, uh, because, you know, he's made so many iconic films, uh, you know, among my favorite last picture show. Uh, is there anything that, you know, still helps you to this day? Is, does he help you sort of read over scripts or even look at cuts of fan, you know, of your new film and sort of give substantial critiques? Oh, absolutely. Um, I learned a ton of, of, of how, of, of the craft of directing from my father because he talked about working on his movies and what he did on his movies. And that would be a conversation at dinner time. And, uh, we watched, I watched every John Ford movie and every Howard Hawks movie and quite a few Hitchcock movies before I was nine or 10. Many, many Lubitsch films, um, Jean Renoir. So I had seen hundreds and hundreds of films by the time I was 10, just for fun, but you're learning when you watch these movies. And it certainly wasn't any, none of those films were coming out in my generation. They were, you know, 20, 30 years prior, some, some 40 years prior. 
made prior. Um, so great, great actors learning about great, great, great acting, what a pause means when you cut somebody. He talked a lot about editing because he edited the last picture show and Target himself. There's, there might be editors credited on yeah. the film that he did the cutting. So I learned a lot about all the, the major directors um, and um he helped me develop my first screenplay. I mean, I wrote a screenplay in my 20s, but my first screenplay that I was really serious about called The Rabbit Will Die, which I'd still like to make about a female a female lead in her early 40s who's given a child up for adoption when she was 12, 17 years old. My father helped me develop that script, and so did my mother. They would give me notes. Um, it was difficult at first for my first screenplay, but I've gotten a lot more open with having a parent help um, he uh, watched uh, my short and was extremely impressed and encouraging and said that he was expecting it to be a lot more amateurish and it seemed like I had directed a few films before that and I was very moved by that and I said, well, I learned from the best, come on. <laughs> um, he, he helped me develop Phantom Halo. Um, he was quite busy at that time, but he did help develop the final versions of the film and then um, saw, you know, close to a final cut and we actually cut a few scenes together before I lost the movie. Because he's the executive producer on Phantom Halo. So um, definitely creatively we work together and we're working together right now on a, on a script called The Criminals, which I am attached to direct, which my parents wrote in 1968. Wow. I found it, yeah, yeah I could talk about that film forever. Um, so this was I, a script they wrote together in 1968, Polly and, and your yeah, father? Yeah, yeah. Polly, Platt, and Peter wrote it in 1968 um, between after they had done Targets and before the last picture show. Roger Corman said to them, I, need, I want you guys to write a script that I want to make uh, like Gunga Din, but cheap. <laughs> so they went through all these different ideas that they had, Jason and the Argonauts, he kind of slammed that down. All these different ideas that they had, big movies that they were going to try for cheap, and he said, and I have, you know, three weeks in a salt mine in Poland, I can shoot there for free. So my mother was a World War II buff, and she was, you know, scouring her World War II books, which she had many, and she found this story about a group of criminals in Poland at the time that Hitler was had newly invaded the country and taken it and occupied it. Um, about a group of criminals who destabilized the Nazi occupation by doing criminal acts uh, on the officers and the SS men. So they took that idea and turned it into a script and turned it into Roger. They got paid $3,000 to do it. And um, when Roger didn't make it, the rights reverted back to them. And um, I didn't know anything about this script and I was cleaning out a pile of scripts in one of my drawers because I was moving in my office and a bunch of my father's scripts had ended up in, in my office because he was living with me a, a couple, for a couple of months in 2009. So I looked through this pile of scripts and uh, at the bottom of the pile was a script by both of them. The other scripts at the top of the pile were just written by Peter and you know other partners he'd worked with, but the bottom of this pile was a script called The Criminals based on true life events in World War II, and it said by Polly Platt and Peter Vardonovich, and I started reading it, and I said, what the, f 
what is this? And um, it was this incredible script that I feel like I'm born to direct because it's a crime movie and that's what I primarily, my, my primary interests lie in crime. All my, my original scripts are, have some criminal aspects to them. So um, we, Peter and I have been developing it for a couple years and I'm attached to direct it. And, um, we're actually getting close to a, a final draft um, that we're going to send out, and um, I'm very excited about. Like Ocean's Eleven meets Schindler's List. Wow! No, it's incredible. And uh, did, you had no idea that your neither of your parents had talked about that script over the years. They had never talked about it to me, but I when I call I called my sister first, Sashi, my sister. And my parents only had two kids, um, Sashi Bogdanovich or Alexandra's her real name. She it's her nickname. And um, I said, what's this script? Do you know anything about this? She goes, oh, yeah, mom and dad wanted to make that in the 90s, but they could never agree on it. I'm like, go figure. So I guess that my mother always wanted to make it, never let go of her dream to make the film. And they tried to do it in the 90s, but they couldn't agree. Um, there's so much water under the bridge at this point, and they had made peace with each other before they, my mom passed away that, you know, my, my dad doesn't want to make the film. He said that I could direct it. So, um, yeah, so she wanted to make it in the 90s. And I can't tell you how much, how how strong her interest in World War II was. She was in, uh, her father was on the Dachau trials. Her father, father was a colonel in the Army. So in 1946 or 1945, they went to Berlin. And she was, she was only six or seven years old. Six. And she was extremely taken and, and influenced and, and that made a huge impact on her life that she saw all these children that had been part of World War II that had, had missing limb children walking around Berlin because of the bombing. So I think that for her to make a movie about World War II was always important. She didn't get to make a movie about World War II. Yeah. Well, definitely, I'm looking forward uh, to, you know, to seeing that guys go into production <laughs> it's gonna be a hard one to get made but once it gets made it'll be amazing it's an action movie you know it's really really got a lot of great action in it and okay. it's fun it's got a whorehouse in it on a houseboat in Poland on a river I mean, it's got all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on cool. um, I was wondering too about uh the Other Side of the Wind, uh, I don't know if you know anything about it, but I read the New York Times article a few months ago that said uh, that your father was uh, editing. I don't know if you might have any update on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they uh, have made a deal with the Orson State, um, the people that, that are you know, beneficiaries of his uh, estate, and uh, they are editing it, and um, it will be, it will premiere, I don't know where, and then it will come out. I'm sure it will have a, you know, a, a theatrical release because there's going to be so many people who want to see it. And um, he stars in it with um, John Houston, and Frank Marshall is one of the current producers on it, and I, I think he was one of the producers when they shot it. Because um, there's definitely he was one of the producers. And, uh, you know, uh, Dennis Hopper's in it. And Oya, I don't know her last name at the moment. Uh, Kador, um, is that right? What is it? I think it's Oya Kador. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was his um, girlfriend for many years and one of the beneficiaries of his estate, lends his estate. And uh, she's in it, she stars in it. And I think Orson's in it as well. 
and I could be wrong about that. Um, and I mean, I've only seen a little bit of footage, but yes, my father is currently the supervising editor. Um, he'll be, you know, he'll have other people working on it with him, Frank and, and Philippe, who is the producer. Um, but they have been trying to get this film uh, made, you know, finished ever since Orson died. He basically told Peter that it was his, you know, dying wish, like, please, if I pass away and I don't have time to finish, I cannot finish the movie, will you finish for me? So my father feels like he's, he owes it to Orson to finish the film. Yeah, I've been reading articles uh, over the years, you know, like the footage was locked up or there were some rights issues. But, uh, you know, this is, you know, incredible that, you know, this lost film from Orson Welles that was never finished is finally going to be completed. Yeah, and somebody who said, said the negative has never been touched. And even some of the perfs have not been perfed all the way through, you know, little holes. Yeah. Some of the, the, the inside of the holes are still intact. So it's really like pristine it's film. set up on a, you know, yeah. on a editing bay, a moviola or a flatbed, you know, and they're, they're digitizing all the dailies, but eventually they're going to go back and cut the negative. And the negative is in pristine condition because it's never been touched. Nobody's ever touched the negative because it's been sitting for 20 plus years. No, it's incredible. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely that is definitely in process at the moment as we speak. Yeah, I mean that's that's a part of uh, film history. That, it's, uh, it's yeah. so much <laughs> is. It, I mean, it's a hundred. I mean, it's going to be amazing. And Peter's so young in it. I mean, he's like early thirties. Yeah, I think he's like one of the lead. Is he like one of the lead characters in the piece? And he is lead. Him yeah. and John Huston. Yeah, he's lead. Wow. Yeah, and they shot it over like a four or five year period. I mean, my father knows a lot more about the specifics, but I just asked him about this, like, okay, so you shot it right before you went to do the last picture show. He's like, that's when I started, you know, working as an actor in the movie, but it, he shot it over a period of several years. Yeah, I think Orson sort of, he lost money to finance it at a certain point, so he would just sort of go back to it uh, whenever he could. Yeah, exactly. Determined to get it done. <laughs> 